This afternoon I want to speak to you about, believe it or not, strangely mindfulness. <laughs> but I want to try and give you the picture of mindfulness as it's presented within this foundation tradition as it's presented within what we call roughly Buddhism, which is a term I'm not particularly fond of. It uh, covers up more than it reveals, and it's also basically an invented term. So let's just call it the foundation tradition, this tradition that stems all the way back two and a half thousand years ago to this person who we call the Buddha. To start off, I really want to read you a poem. Are you sitting comfortably? And I'll read you a poem. Um, which I think, in a way, sums up the mindful attitude. This is by a poem by somebody called Fernando Pessoa. Somebody might know of his work. Um, it's a lovely name, Pessoa. Apparently it means no one. <laughs> so just like in Pessoa in French. And he says this. It's one of his uh, short poems. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well, and there may be a castle, and there may be just one more road. I don't know, and I don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I look only at the road before the bend. Because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good at all to look anywhere else, or at what I can't see. So let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That for them is the road. If we are to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, that's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. <laughs> I think Pessoa's poem, in a way, sums up about remembering to be here, to remembering to be present, to, to what is occurring, to what is actually happening at that moment. Of course, he is indicating, isn't he, the mind that's always ahead of itself, always out there thinking about the future, always thinking often and planning about that future. So I think it sums up that mindful attitude that we can see that the Buddha really speaks about and makes one of the fundamental pillars of his strategy um, that's moving in a direction to what he calls waking up. Yeah. Often you'll hear this referred to as enlightenment. No, it's not. It's waking up. This is what the Buddha was indicating. He was talking about moving from a state, state of sleepy forgetfulness to a state of being awake. Yeah. So using that almost as a metaphor, the state that we're in, uh, according to the Buddha, is one of moving somewhat like a sleepwalker through the world. And as a sleepwalker, we don't know actually what we keep running into. 
often we keep running into the same things which give us similar pains and similar problems in our lives. And so this process of what we call mindfulness and part part of this strategy of moving towards awakening is dedicated to that whole thing of waking up to what is actually going on here. I might add at this point not to what we'd like to be going on but waking up to what is actually going on. So there's a heavy dose of realism in this. There's a heavy dose of empiricism in the, this historical person who we call the Buddha's attitudes towards this waking up process. It's very, very heavily dominated by what we can touch, see, feel, what's actually occurring right now to just give you another quotation, but this one actually from the Buddha himself. How we can get lost in speculation, how we can get lost in basically metaphysics of thinking about you know, that which we can't see, that which we can't contact, that which we don't know and don't even know if it's true. Somebody asked the Buddha at one stage, he said, what, what do you conceive to be the totality of things? What do you conceive to be the word is sabha in, in Pali, the all. What is the nature of the all? And the Buddha says this, this is the all, the eyes and its forms, the ear and its sounds, the nose and its aromas, the tongue and its taste, the body and its tactile objects, the mind and its thoughts. This is called the all. If anybody posits another all, they're likely to suffer. So he's making it very clear that this particular path, the path he was outlining, was dedicated in this early period. Buddhism in its history becomes something much more, and you can always find contradictory attitudes towards this in the history of Buddhism as it moved into different cultures, is infected by different, um, by different philosophies and ways of understanding. But in its ancient Indian context... This two and a half thousand years ago, um, the Buddha was actually quite a rampant empiricist. He was actually saying, this is what we can know. And this term, which we call mindfulness, which I'm hopefully going to problematize for you, uh, is dedicated to this process of waking up to what we can actually know with our sensorium, through our senses. Yeah? What we can actually know. Not what we'd like to speculate about, but what can we actually know. And I think almost as the Pessoa poem says, there is enough beauty here without having to speculate about things that we have no idea of or contact. So this is, this is the Buddha's basic attitude. Even this term Buddha, let me just put this in place for this to, before I move into what is really the body of my talk. Let me put this in place. Even the term Buddha is not a name, as probably many of you know. It's an epithet. And if his path is dedicated to awakening, the word Buddha, derived from a Pali term called Bodh, which actually means woken up. So Buddha means somebody who's woken up. Right? So this is what this strategy, which includes many things, but this term which we refer to and keep on referring to as mindfulness is actually an important part of this strategy. It's actually an important part of it.
Mindfulness. Well, this is a term that's ubiquitous, isn't it? It's all over the place. As I was walking around my Sainsbury's not so long ago, I bumped into the mindfulness colouring book. (laughs) You find shelves of stuff from dedicated from anything from mindful gardening to brewing. (laughs) We can't escape this word. In so much so, it's in danger of actually becoming devalued, I think, in the contemporary world. It's very much in danger as it moves into things like mindful colouring books and all of the places that we find uh, this term now. We always have to remember, of course, that there's nothing sacrosanct about this word anyway, because it was only used for the first time in 1881 um, by early translators who who were translating early Buddhist material from the original language of Pali into English. And it was actually coming out of uh, the Christian tradition. This is where the word was plucked from, basically. Um, because this was the tradition they knew, and it was used in this context of translating early Buddhist texts. So there's nothing really sacrosanct about this word. Um, And it's been used since 1881, up until quite recently, uh, where it's becoming sort of captured by all these other things that are going on. Um, But let's have a look at this word. Let's have a look at the word. Because the word in the original language, as Chris was indicating this morning in his introduction... Uh, to the day, is included in this word satipatthana. As many of you will know, I'm sure you've all been there, you've read some stuff about it, but the word in Pali is the word sati. Is this word sati, S-A-T-I. It's really not complex. It comes from a Sanskrit term called smirti. Um, Smirti, which actually means to remember something, to recollect it. Often this gets lost in, in contemporary usages, this, this idea of remembrance and recollection. And in ancient Indian texts, there were whole texts, a whole plethora of texts, which were dedicated to the idea of remembering in a historical sense. In a historical sense. So there are works within the Hindu tradition, for example, which are works such as the Mahabharata, some of you might know this, the uh, Ramayana, the other big Indian epic, which are considered to be Smirti text, texts which have been remembered over history. Um, by the way, <laughs> if you're fortunate or unfortunate enough to see the Mahabharata on Indian television in 364 episodes... <laughs> It was rather long. (laughs) So these were remembered texts. Now the Buddha was playing with this idea of remembrance and recollection. And so he, when he uses this term sati, he's speaking to an audience who already understand this in relationship to terms such as this collection and body of texts, which was there in probably not quite the same form as we have it now, but certainly in a proto-form. and were considered to be in some way sacred because they've been remembered in this particular way. And he takes this term sati and applies it to what is going on in the present. 
applies it to what's going on in the present, still maintaining this very strong sense within the word sati of remembering something, of recollecting something. What are we recollecting here? It's fairly obvious, I think, from the kind of instructions you get within MBSR, MBCT, and just retreats such as this. You're remembering and recollecting the present moment. This is what we're doing. We're coming back to this present moment and recollecting what is actually happening in this moment. As a wonderful counterbalance to that tendency of the mind to go out into the future or back into the past. So, let's play with alternative translations of this. You know, one of these sad people that sits there poring over Pali terms, wondering how to translate them. And, you know, one of the ways that we can translate this is never going to catch on, by the way. It's never going to replace this term mindfulness because it becomes more of a phrase, which is either present moment recollection or present moment awareness. This is really what mindfulness is about, this present moment recollection or present moment awareness. And this is what it is dedicated to, to recollecting what is actually happening in this moment because of that tendency of the mind to be fast-forwarding into the future, speculating, conceiving, running away with itself. It's like thought having run amok. This is what the tendency of the human mind is. That it was going on two and a half thousand years ago prove it's not just our problem in the contemporary era. It's not just our problem. It's not just a problem of of the modern age. Two and a half thousand years ago, human minds had the tendency to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's interesting when you look through even some of these ancient Buddhist texts, even about the past, we talk about going into the future, but there's also the past, that in these, some of these Buddhist texts, you still find things like, weren't things better in the past? <laughs> yeah, this was two and a half thousand years ago. Go back to Confucius, he's doing exactly the same. You know, there's that tendency to not to want to be present at this moment. I've resisted the temptation that I've done for quite a while recently, which is to read a quotation by Pascal, the 17th century philosopher and mathematician. Some of you might have come across him, Blaise Pascal. In one of his pensées, in one of his thoughts, he actually says, why is it, he kind of speculates, why is it that we, in a sense, don't want to be in this present moment? Why is it we have this tendency to be in, you know, out there in the future in a place we're not whilst ignoring the place we are? In terms of the poem I read you right at the beginning, to be thinking about what's beyond the bend in the road when you're still on the road. <laughs> you don't know what is there. He comes up with this very, I think, very potent phrase. Why is it that we don't stay in this present moment? Because the present usually hurts. Now, again, not something recent. This is the 17th century. 
The present usually hurts. And I think that's the starting place, that's the meeting place, in many senses, between this ancient Buddhist tradition of two and a half thousand years ago and what has taken place in this this movement that's grown up over the last 30-plus years in terms of secular uses of mindfulness. It's dealing with a present that hurts, often, in many different ways, in all the possible ways that we can have of that present moment hurting, from the chronic pain that John Kabat-Zinn was dealing with to the psychological ills that perhaps many of you already are confronted with in your, in your work, you know, the kind of things that we come in contact with, but also the hurting of our own present minds. What's going on actually there at that moment? And that is one of the reasons for this tendency to wish to evade the present moment because of that hurting. Often because of its repetition, also often because of its boredom. There are many ways that this can hurt. And the Buddha had a lovely phrase, I'm not going to go in, uh, a lovely term for it, I'm not going to go into it, because uh, I think um, Chris and Christina will probably deal with this in a lot more detail, this term dukkha. Dukkha, usually translated as suffering, an absolutely appalling translation of this term. It really means a sense of profound dissatisfaction. A sense of profound dissatisfaction. This is not the way I wanted life to be. I didn't want life to be like this. And that will include all of the the ordinary pains of life. And it will also include all of those things I do not find satisfactory in my day-to-day existence. This is real ground-based stuff, isn't it? What the Buddha's talking about. There's nothing esoteric here. It usually gets captured within something which is generally referred to as four noble truths. Four noble truths. Actually, they're considered to be perhaps a better translation of ennobling truths. Things which can ennoble one by inquiring into them. Why do they occur? All of you will have come across the two arrows, perhaps. You know, generally a model which is even used in the secular trainings. You know, the arrow, the thing that happens to us, and the one we push in willfully into ourselves, you know, just to see how much it really hurts. Sati is dedicated to some of the overcoming of this, and it's highly, highly nuanced in this tradition. So much so that, in a strange way, with this little tiny word, it covers so much. It covers so many approaches to coming into this moment, to dealing with the problems that arise, dealing with often the problems that are associated with our perceptions. Another term in the original language, in Pali, which is sanya, which are our perceptive, discriminative processes. The Buddha thought at the heart of our perceptive, discriminative (coughs) processes, something was actually going wrong. That going wrong, without going into a great deal of detail about it, ended up in something that looks strangely like rumination. 
Again, a word in the original language, um, usually translated as proliferation. The end of the perceptual process ends in proliferation. What the mind is dwelling on. What the mind is dwelling on. At the root of this is another, you know, of this Pali word, which is the word papancha, is another root, which means to obsess about things. And we begin, and in the in the sense of the breakdown of our perceptual discriminative processes when they start to go awry, when they start to go wrong, we end up obsessing. We end up in a place, um, in a sense, where our thoughts are just going on and on and on. One thought continuing, followed by another followed by another, followed by another. And it can be likened to jumping on a train and not knowing where those processes are going to end up. You don't know where your train's going to go. Passes through many, many stations and you don't know what the terminus is. You haven't got a clue. And jumping on the train of Papancha is exactly the same. Jumping on the train of proliferation is to not to know where my thoughts are going to end up. Where is it going to actually arrive? We just don't know. Often those thoughts are, again, escaping the moment, moving towards the future, evading what is actually here. So often we can be living not in sati, in mindfulness, but what is known as asati, forgetfulness, in a, process, in a state of forgetfulness of unmindfulness. And what are we forgetting? What are we forgetting? And what are we remembering? I think this helps us to understand. And in both cases, it's one really, well, I was going to say, really important dimension, just being. (laughs) That's what we're forgetting. We're forgetting being in this world as we get caught up in our projects to evade the moment or our running back to the past because they appear to hold better, more golden moments uh, in the past. We forget, we live in the forgetfulness of being and the task of what it means to be in this moment. So sati, in its relationship with our discriminative perceptual processes, becomes a remembrance of being in this moment. Doesn't sound much, does it? Doesn't sound actually a big deal. But it's huge. The ramifications of it, the way it plays out in terms of our life, is enormous. Living in forgetfulness or living in remembrance. Actually beginning to acknowledge and accept that which arises for us at any given moment. This is the heart of something, again, which will be mentioned as we go through the week. Chris mentioned it very briefly this morning in his introduction. This is the heart of this process. It's the heart of sati. It's almost like the literal and metaphorical heart because it is metta. Kindness and friendliness towards that which arises. (coughs) not making an enemy 
out of here. When we start to cease to make an enemy out of what is here, even the most difficult dimension of our experience, then perhaps the present doesn't hurt so much. And we don't get into Pascal's state of trying to evade it in some way. In um, quite an ancient text, which is uh, probably, probably grew up during the time of the Buddha, the Buddha defined um, the notion of forgetfulness. What, was it, what did it mean to be forgetful? This is an ancient book called, it's part of the Pali Canon, which is called in Pali the Pugala Panyati, the understanding of the human person. Yeah. Panyati means to understand, Pugala means the, the human person. Yeah. And he says this, that which is forgetfulness is failing of memory, non-remembrance, non-recollection, inattentiveness, unretentiveness, oblivion. This is said to be forgetfulness. A person possessed of such forgetfulness is forgetful. <laughs> it's want of knowledge, want of vision, want of comprehension, want of understanding. Want of perfect knowledge, want of penetration, the not grasping, the not diving deep, the not surveying, the not reflecting, the absence of the work of reflection, dullness, foolishness, want of intelligence, delusion, infatuation, bewilderment, ignorance, the flood of ignorance, the bond of ignorance, the propensity of ignorance, the accession of ignorance, the barrier of ignorance, and the dullness and the root of all unwholesomeness. Do you think he's got a downer on it? <laughs> That's forgetfulness. It covers literally, if we take this seriously, it literally covers a myriad of sins, doesn't it? It covers a myriad of states of mind which lead us into, actually the word is being used here, is unwholesomeness, akusala unwholesomeness. It leads us into unskillfulness in terms of our lives. Sati is manifold and the approaches to the development of Sati is manifold. At the most basic level that the Buddha describes of learning to come into the process of remembrance, learning to come into this process of recollection, and let's just dwell on those two words for a second, remembrance and recollection. They work really well in English, actually. They, often English words don't work very well in translating Pali terms. But these work really well because to remember means to bring something back from scatteredness, fragmentation, into some degree of wholeness. And recollection does the same thing as well. So it actually works very, very well. This is what we're doing starting to bring the mind back from that fragmentation, that papancha, that scatteredness, that tendency for the mind to spread out in various ways, and to come back to this present moment, and to recollect what's actually occurring in this present moment. And this is the ground base of sati. This is the ground base of it. 
This is probably that which is most familiar to probably many of yourselves. This is what's going on in sati. And this is, might be termed in these various nuancings of, of mindfulness, this might be termed simple awareness. Simply becoming aware, the task of simply becoming aware of what is actually happening and acknowledging it. Acknowledging what is taking place at this present moment. This is the, as I say, the ground base, the starting point for any other developments of sati. Without this, nothing else occurs. This is literally the exploring of where we are at this moment. This is the exploring. This is seeing yourself as a foreign country. Often we don't know what's going on, do we? This is, this is one of the basic states that the Buddha keeps on trying to bring us back to. That for a lot of our experience, it appears to be almost like a foreign country you know, until we start to explore, you know, until I really start to begin to move to the, through this terrain which we call ourselves and begin to see what is actually there. There, perhaps, is a valley of discontent. Yeah. Over there, a pool of tranquility. Over there, the sun is rising, the sun of joy. But over there is a green field, there is a field, a barren field of despair. We really are beginning to mark the terrain, begin to walk that terrain, beginning to see it. This is not hypothetical, this is intensely practical. And the Buddha's approach in general, if you haven't gleaned it already or gathered it already, is an intensely practical approach. It was not ever meant to be conceived of as a philosophy or a religion in the Buddha's own time. This was a practical way of being. He's intensely critical of the traditions that he sees around him in ancient India. And so this is an intensely practical thing that we have to do. It's no good speculating. We have to go on the journey. We have to close our eyes. We have to sit. We have to walk. We have to bring that recollection into the ordinary stuff of daily life to simply become aware of what is going on for us. To simply become aware. To become aware of the phenomena that are arising and also, when we begin to acknowledge it, also to see something else that's occurring with this phenomena. And it's really interesting, isn't it? It passes away. Those things which arise pass away. And this was something the Buddha was really getting us to see. So this tradition, which many of these secular approaches in which sati is really embedded, is often referred to, as many of you will know this term, as vipassana. Vipassana meditation. Well, let's ditch the word meditation. Yeah, that's my own personal view, by the way. I want to get rid of the word meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I want to turn you all into agriculturalists. Yeah. Because the actual word in, in Pali is bhavana, which means cultivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're cultivating. Yeah, we're ploughing fields and sowing. <laughs> And really that is what we're engaging in. We're not meditating. Meditating is you know, somehow being slightly distanced 
from the event. We're actually engaging in an intense cultivation. And what are we engaging in Vipassana and in this simple awareness is clear seeing. Because that's what the term Vipassana actually means, clear seeing. We can engage in metta bhavana, the cultivation of friendliness and kindness. We can engage in samatha bhavana, the cultivation of calm abiding, this calm dwelling in this world. A different way of being in the world, isn't it? So bhavana is what we're engaging. So sati is a cultivation, the cultivation of simple awareness at this early, early stage is this ground base for what we're engaging in. And everything else that's going to happen follows from that. From that. So we're getting familiar. And there's something really interesting, isn't there, about that movement? Because to cultivate in this way somehow places us in the position of the observer. So instead of being caught up in your own mess, you can be observer of your own mess. And there's a lot of difference in that. A huge difference. And I'm sure you're really aware of this, particularly in in what you're doing in training or being MBSR, MBCT teachers. This is actually the fundamental movement of beginning to take this position of the observer, taking that step back, not being caught up in the thought, but observing the thought or whatever the phenomena is that's arising at this moment. In taking that stance also, and I've already mentioned this, we're allowing ourselves into that position of letting the phenomena, whatever it is, be it the thought, the image, the sensation, to do what it will do, arise and pass away. And this is so fundamental. I'll talk about this much later on. Impermanence is absolutely fundamental to what the Buddha is talking about. Actually, part of the insight that he really speaks about is having real embodied insight. It becomes incorporated into our ways of understanding. Yeah. I don't know if you appreciate that word, incorporation, means to take it on on a bodily sense, that this is what phenomena do. They arise and they pass away, and they arise and they pass away, and they don't do anything else. And this is all based on simple awareness, the simple awareness. It's likened in the early text with a simile that the Buddha uses to somebody on a high platform overlooking a landscape within a forest. And seeing that here, you know, here comes the jackal moving through the forest. I used to live in a forest in India at one time, and I could actually see the, the jackals moving across the fields, and the elephant just emerging out of the, you know, the forest itself. And you could see the people farming in the land behind. And in other words, you're getting a really good perspective on the landscape. You're placed on that high platform. You're the observer overlooking. That which, is, you know, that which is literally taking place in front of you in this moment. So without you know, stress, stressing too strongly the point, this is the most fundamental <coughs> aspect of sati that the Buddha talks about, this act of recollection. And that is the watchword almost to what we do when we sit here, isn't it? What, 
You know, we sit down in this experiment, which is called ourselves, in this funny posture, you know, doing funny walking outside. You know. I'm stre- overstressing it a little bit, but I hope you see what I mean. That it, there's a sort of, sort of experimental aspect to this. You sit down and you, in a sense, close your eyes and see what's going on. That's where the interest and the curiosity is. What's going on here? Not what do I think is going on here, but what's actually going on here. And all of this is simple awareness. Simply becoming aware of that which is present to us and taking this position of the observer. Distancing ourselves. Unhooking from the train of papancha which we can get pulled into recollecting where we can be with that present moment of the something which is going on in the present moment that anchor to use the phrase that's often used or the word that's often used in these more secular trainings something which we can anchor ourselves to that's going on in the present moment the body going on in the present with its breathing going on in the present not past experience, not a future body not a past body, not a future breath not a past breath, but this breath that's going on right now as a way of unhooking ourselves from that tendency to get pulled in to the whirlpool of thought, to get sucked down into it, either to the past or to the present. Yeah. It might be simple awareness, but it ain't that simple, is it? <laughs> a lot of the time. And then the Buddha starts to speak about other forms that take you know, that are there, which we can again put under broad headings. And one can be put under the roughly broad heading of protective awareness. And this goes against the very idea that sometimes you still hear banded around that one should just sit with everything. Even if it's the most difficult, most painful, traumatic thing that's happened to you, just sit with it. The Buddha says no. He has this rough, delineated group of different forms of awareness which can go under this banding of protective awareness. Sometimes we need to protect our minds from not going to the too painful, that which we cannot deal with at the moment, that which is too raw, too sore, too traumatic for us to actually be with this in any meaningful sense at the moment without being sucked down into more pain and more distress. And there's a wisdom to this, isn't there? And I don't usually use that word. There's usually a wisdom to this of knowing when to move, to explore, to acknowledge and to release, and when to actually say, I can't go there at this moment. And as we find in the text, there is another simile. Yeah, the Buddha uses many, many similes to describe sati and the functioning of sati. Yeah. Here, sati is a gatekeeper. And there are many gatekeepers, and there are basically six gates to the city. Each, each has a gatekeeper called sati, and the job of sati is to let in the friends and keep out the enemies of the city. Yeah. This is what its job is. This is what it's to do, to keep out that which is potentially hostile, that which is potentially dangerous and damaging at this stage. 
So there's the clear role here for some kind of protective awareness of beginning to know often what is damaging, what you cannot deal with because of being caught into and sucked into that whirlpool of thought that often surrounds those states when they arise in our experience. Now, unlike denial or repression, this is not the case. It's acknowledgement that it's there. They're still hanging around outside the gates. (laughs) Acknowledgement that it's there, but saying not at the moment. It's sort of bracketing it, putting it to one side and full acknowledgement that this is something I might return to. And this is, again, another very clear indication of what the Buddha is saying about sati, that it's not just one thing. It's not homogenous, it's heterogeneous. It has many different facets, and this protective awareness and forms of protective awareness is just one of its facets. Of course, stuff gets through. Of course, something often does enter and it becomes obsessional. And here, again, we have another simile, which is the simile of, well, we often have people struck by arrows in these stories and images that the Buddha gives us, but here we have the image of a surgeon who's dealing with somebody who's been hit by an arrow, and the arrowhead is embedded in their flesh. And what the surgeon is doing is using a probe you know, how you probe a wound. And what the probe is doing is actually beginning to discern the dimensions of the arrowhead, what shape it is, what shape that arrowhead is, how large is it, how far down into the flesh has it gone. He's probing in this way in order to be able to discern the best way of removing this arrowhead and cause the least amount of damage in doing so. The probe is called sati. (laughs) Again. That's what we're doing. We're starting to probe often the dimensions of our problem. Now, the probe is very gentle. You're not going to shove the probe into the wound. You're probing in a very, very gentle fashion. Beginning to discern, as I say, literally the dimensions of our problems, yeah. of that which has entered into and can become not just like the physical wound, but the wound to the psyche that's there. Now, this is done in a very gentle fashion. Yeah. We're not pulling the arrow out, we're not pulling and attempting to remove forcibly that which is there, but gently beginning to really feel the size of the problem, really begin to feel the size of the problem, find ways that I can successfully deal with this, remove it, take it out of being such a huge issue, (coughs) physically or psychologically, for ourselves. So this is what is this dimension of actually what we might call introspective awareness. We're introspecting in this. So, 
simple awareness, protective awareness, and introspective awareness. These are shades, nuances, as I keep on saying, of this term, this one term, sati, of mindfulness. There is another dimension to this as well, which um, actually includes something which many of us wouldn't perhaps even conceive of as being sati. And this is deliberately forming concepts. Deliberately forming concepts. Except these are useful concepts. And, well, the classic, and I'll start off with the classic one. Deliberately forming a concept might be called meta. I'm working in such a way with a conception of friendliness as opposed to aversion. And we do that in the more formalised practice, often by the utilisation of phrases. It doesn't mean I have to evoke a false emotion or kind of will myself into a particular state to do this, but I'm using certain conceptions, the conception of friendliness and kindness and gentleness and acknowledgement as a way of directing the mind, of creating, if you like, almost channels down which the mind runs to approach something, rather than that which arises readily, which is often aversion to things. Harshness, perceiving things in a very critical manner. So we're starting to get the mind to run down a particular way, viewing something a different way. I've often likened this to a behavioural gesture with the mind. This is what we're doing. It's nothing about emotion, and this will be re-echoed when we come to do this more formally. This is nothing about evoking emotions at all. It becomes literally almost a way of simply directing the mind. Directing the mind towards that. A way of helping the mind to dwell on something. On this conception of metta. Equally with, sometimes with karuna, with what's generally translated as compassion. Which I'm (coughs) now getting a bit wary of, this term compassion. But... um, for all sorts of reasons. But again, this is another way of directing the mind. And then there are ways of almost cognitively reframing, reconceptualizing things in order to see them and encounter them in different ways. These are often called, um, actually the term which is used in the Satipatthana Sutta, these are often called anupasanas, contemplations. Contemplating using a concept. And this, for example, can be reconceptualizing something that which we find difficult or a person we find difficult. Let's take a very concrete example. Somebody we find difficult. You conceptualize what is good about them rather than dwell on that which you're aversive to. Might be difficult, but it's, you know, again, reframing the way that you see that per- person. To take the desirous object, you know, person or thing or whatever it may be, reconceptualizing in the way that you see, if you like, the downside of it. <laughs> you know? 
So we can reframe things, reconceptualizing the whole situation. You know, what is that person doing, banging on my wall, trying to irritate me? No, they're not. They're trying to put a cupboard up. <laughs> yeah. Now, these all sound very simple, but from the Buddhist point of view, these are, again, forms of sati, forms of using a mindful approach to things, to recollect what is going on into the moment and to deal with them in a way that opens up either the possibility of acknowledgement and acceptance of dealing with the problem, and but also of reframing things in a more helpful, more skillful <coughs> way. <clears throat> and many of the approaches, again, which can be considered to be sati, can be also behavioural. So sati can come in our mindful actions. But it doesn't come naturally, does it, often? Again, we have to train ourselves with sati. So I hope you're beginning to get the picture by this stage. I'm just trying to start to draw this together a little bit more. I'm just starting to get a picture that sati, from the traditional early Buddhist perspective, is actually extremely complex. There are many, many different forms. So it might take the form of simply overlooking the landscape. It might take the form of removing the object and probing its dimensions. Knowing when, for example, and give you another simile that the Buddha uses, of a cow herder who's trying to stop his cows from moving into the next field, straying away into an area where crops are being grown to stop them from eating it. So he's having to be really quite you know, proactive in bringing the cows back, you know, bringing the herd back out of that into into a, a neutral area where there isn't you know, the danger of him eating, the danger of the cows eating the crops. Or the cow herder, who's actually much more relaxed, is sitting under a tree just looking at his cows because the harvest's gone. All the, all the things have been... You know, all the things have been harvested, all the crops have been harvested, and therefore, basically, you can just call the cows back occasionally if they're just straying a bit too far. Again, I hope you see the similarity of what we're doing. Sometimes we need much, much more effort to bring the mind back. And sometimes it's just a gentle recalling of the mind in this. Sometimes supreme vigilance is required. Yeah. Effort, again, becomes heart at the heart of this practice. But it's balanced effort. It's not just a, an effort which is trying too hard. Often the supreme danger when we first start to practice is that we try too hard. Yeah. Or the alternative is we don't try hard enough. I always say that the, the two poles of that, trying too hard and trying too little... Trying too hard ends up in a headache. Trying too little ends up in sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's the two dangers of this. So it's balanced effort that's required. And where are we trying to get to with this practice? Where are we trying to get to? 
Well, in the Buddhist tradition, as I said, right at the very start, this practice is aimed at awakening. Waking up. And what are we waking up to? Remember the present moment. So where are we trying to get to? Nowhere. (laughs) We're simply trying to get to be where we already are. We're not trying to get anywhere. This is why it's the recollection of being. So mindfulness is the recollection of being, the constant recollection of where we are, what is going on, what is happening. And this doesn't mean that we have to discount and disparage the whole idea of planning. We can't do without it, can we? We cannot do without the whole issue of planning. It's not as if we could somehow isolate ourselves and live holy, holy, holy in this moment. But know when you're planning. Know when you need to do it. And that's really the core, isn't it, of the mindful approach to this recollection of being, is to know what we're doing and to know where we are and to know what is appropriate. And so I want to kind of finish off with here, which is, which is actually mindfulness is not so much a thing as a skill. Yeah. It's often spoken about in the Buddhist tradition, particularly in something I've just, you know, in this kind of literature I've read to you from, which is known as the Abhidharma, which is kind of Buddhist psychological compendiums here, is often referred to as a wholesome mental factor. It comes generally with a lot of other wholesome ethical factors which support its functioning, which support the functioning of sati which support the functioning of what we call mindfulness, or this present moment recollection. And this is really important, that it's considered to be a wholesome mental function, because often it gets confused, and it gets confused with attention. Now, these are very specifically divided in Buddhist psychology, that uh, mindfulness is very, very different from attention. Mindfulness is a wholesome mental factor, whilst attention is what's called a variable mental factor. In other words, there can be some forms of attention which are ethical and wholesome, and some forms of attention which are not. And so, dependent on how you're using that faculty of attention depends on its wholesomeness or its unwholesomeness. Whereas mindfulness actually without going into too much detail about this, mindfulness from this perspective is actually intrinsically wholesome. It pulls in, for example, metta. It pulls in (coughs) compassion, if we're going to continue to use that word. It pulls these in. And so what distinguishes mindfulness from that simple quality of attention is that actually mindfulness, in a way cares and that doesn't mean to be some kind of soppy emotional state it means that it's actually in a sense of a caring relationship with that which is in rela- it's in relation to so intrinsic in a way to the mindful approach is metta they're not two different things that meta 
and mindfulness basically are the same thing. In fact, in this very famous sutta, which is known as the Metta Sutta, it's slightly ambiguous in the grammar, in the Pali grammar, but in this, it's, um, Metta is referred to as either something which is a mindfulness, that's one way of reading it, and even if it isn't uh, a mindfulness, and that's an incorrect way of reading it, it's referred to as something which is wholly supporting mindfulness. There's not a lot of difference between that, those two views. So it's not as if it's something external when we're developing metta. It's internal to the whole process. This friendliness that's coming about is coming about from within the process of sati itself. Not as if we're having to evoke a separate mental construct. Yeah. We can do it formally, and that's that conceptual reframing that we're engaging in. But within the actual practice, it's, it's intrinsic to it. So mindfulness cares about whatever object it's confronted with. I think this is an important corrective in the present day world. It's a really, really important corrective that we remember this because actually the tenor of contemporary existence is often pulling against that caring for ourselves or caring for others and actually encouraging, and I'll read a quote just to finish off, it's actually encouraging the active act of forgetfulness. With all that stuff that I read, when I said the Buddha seems to have a downer on this, joking aside, it's actually encouraging a lot of those elements of forgetfulness in that list that I read to you. It's actively encouraging that. (laughs) If you really want to start a revolution, be mindful. It really is. I I think this this is what is so fascinating about this movement in the contemporary world, is that in actively encouraging mindful attitudes in our lives, not just as towards specific conditions, but actively encouraging mindful attitudes in our lives, we're creating a revolution to bring us back, perhaps from the consumerist type of grasping that many of us use as a palliative for, actually, the present usually hurts. Because that's, that's in fact, the means we know often to deal with the present usually hurts, is go out and buy something. So it's actually in many ways quite revolutionary bringing us back to this encouraging this act of remembering as opposed to forgetting and I'll just finish off with a quote and again it's not from a Buddhist source it's actually an author some of you might know called Milan Kundera Um, Kundera was the author of a book many of you might know because it was made into a film called The Unbearable Lightness of Being and this is what he wrote The demon of speed is often associated with forgetting, with avoidance, and slowness with the process of memory and confronting. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others. We move slowly when we want to listen to the world, the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. 
The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us often and our ability to observe, to hear, to step back and to wonder. Society wants to blow out the tiny, trembling flame of memory. Okay, I'll finish there. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. <laughs> Let's just sit quietly for a moment just before we go for walking.